Well, this afternoon, we are continuing our sermon series in Revelation, where Jesus, who is now in heaven, and when he wrote these letters or dictated these letters, he was in heaven, and he sent these letters through the apostle John, dictated them to him to the seven churches in Asia Minor Minor, that uh, he designated to send these letters to uh, through, through John. John, of course, couldn't take them himself because he was exiled, but some messenger brought those letters and read them and delivered them to the uh, seven churches. These letters are extremely helpful because they show us what the relationship of Christ, now that he is at the right hand of the Father, is with his churches with all of his churches. I've said to you the fact that he sent it to seven specific named churches shows an intimacy that he has with each one of those churches. And it doesn't say, well, why them and not the rest? Because the point is, is if it was just a general thing, it wouldn't, it wouldn't show us that he, he knows each one. And it's true of us. He, he has the stars, the, the angels, the messengers, the leaders in the church are in his hands. And the seven stars are in his hand of each of those churches. And these churches are the lampstands that he walks among. Well, that's true of all, all churches but now from his seat in glory. There is nothing like indifference or inattention on the part of Jesus Christ for his church. It's, it's just so, it, it's, it's almost hard to grasp that as a minister of the gospel, I'm in his hand, uh, that personally in his hand, and that he is here with us right now looking upon us, knowing what we're doing, each one of us. What's more, we see all kinds of, we see the kind of characteristics and behaviors that he approves of and disapproves of in these letters. And as the church was established and was kind of going, and we have this, this assessment from, directly from our Lord to these churches. This is what I don't like that you're doing. This is what I do like. Very, very helpful for us because these things are, are meant for our edification. They, they inform us what, what pleases him and, and what doesn't please him. We need to hear these things for ourselves. For example, it might be easy for us to think that he wants us to be tolerant and patient with immoral conduct in the church because that's what everybody thinks in our day. That, oh, you know, we shouldn't be intolerant of immoral behavior and all these kind of things, even in the church. But he makes it very clear in several of these letters that that he disapproves of that kind of tolerance, that you allow Jezebel there in the church. You should have have dealt with this. And and this comes at us in our our particular context, our particular society is a, a kind of a jarring thing because it's not the way, it's not the way that we think. As the Apostle put it, um, such things as fornication, immorality, that kind of thing, should not even be named among us. And Jesus really drives that home in some of the things he says to these churches. This sentiment comes home with, with great forcefulness when we hear him rebuking these churches for, for being too tolerant of such things. Now, we come to the fifth letter today that he wrote to these churches, the church at Sardis. And there's something quite different that is dealt with in this church that he hasn't really addressed so directly, maybe a little bit, but not so directly. 
This time there are no charges of false doctrine, of immoral behavior, no charges of a lack of deeds of love, no charges of forsaking worship or inappropriate worship, of tolerating false teachers, nor is there any mention of persecution or opposition from enemies that this church was bearing in their city from either the Jews or the um, cult of the emperor, the worship of the emperor. This charge apparently had none of those maladies or difficulties. They were in fact a church that in the eyes of all was prospering and flourishing. Whoever visited them would have seen a very healthy-looking church, a vibrant church, a church that was doing well financially, a church that was reaching out to the people around them with all kinds of ministries, a church that was worshiping God, a church that was involved in, in community service, this sort of thing. Sardis itself, where this church is found, was a very wealthy city. It had been so for nearly... 1,300 years. It was proverbial to speak of someone being as rich as Croesus, one of the Lydian kings who lived here in the early days. So in the ancient world, they often used him as an example of somebody that was rich. Thales, the father of Greek philosophy, was from here as well. Thales, I guess it is. The reason for all this wealth was its situation. It sat like the hub of a wheel with highways going to all the cities around. There was a highway that went to some of the places we've already read about, to Ephesus, that great city, that commercial city where they had, it was on the water. There was one to Thyatira, one to Pergamos, one to Anatolia, one and another to Laodicea, one of the churches we'll be looking at later. So it's like a hub with all these spokes going out, and they were right there at the hub. This made Sardis a center for trade and also a place for taxation. Some of the highway taxes and stuff for some of the caravans that, that would go through there. They were well known for their wealth. They were also well known for their perversity. Those two things often go together. Perhaps as Ezekiel said of Sodom, pride and fullness of bread and abundance of idleness caused them to err. But the sin in this place, with all of their wealth, was of the sophisticated kind, if I could put it that way. No sin is really sophisticated, but you know what I mean. Not robbers and thieves that you had to watch out when you were on the street that somebody was going to mug you or, or grab your purse or something like that. Not, not that kind of street or street violence that was going on or, or, or that sort of thing, but, but fornication and profanity. That was the kind of things that were going on in this prosperous, wealthy city. And they were known for that. The church, the church here did not engage in the immorality of this city, apparently. Um, they had a name that they were alive. But Sardis was the kind of place where that was even respected in a certain way. It was sophisticated kind of places, if you know what I mean. They had philosophers and all of those kind of things. And so 
the way that good morals are respected by philosophers is the way they would respect them, even though philosophers who actually are involved in immorality, but they see someone and they know that, you know, that's virtuous behavior. That's, you know, the, the church was admired in the, in the eyes of, of everyone. But Jesus has very little good to say about this church and its leadership. In fact, he has almost nothing good to say. Some people have found a little bit of good in here, and some say, no, there's nothing. He doesn't say anything good to this church. Take a look at his letter to them. It's, it's cutting. It begins in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. So listen, this is the word of God, Revelation 3, 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord open our heart. May he open our ears to hear and heed what is written here. In this letter, our Lord does four things. This little letter that we just read to this church at Sardis. He graciously exposes their hypocrisy. He tells them to correct it and how to correct it. He warns them of impending judgment if they don't. And he encourages those among them who are sincere. Those are four things that he does in this letter. We will consider these in order keeping in mind that this is written for our admonition. Each of these letters, as we've seen, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. They're, they're for us. They were for this church, directed to this church and their particular issues, but they're for all of us to hear and to be directed toward us in as much as they apply to us. So see, first of all, then, how our Lord graciously exposes hypocrisy. In this place. Take a look again at what he says in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. This must have been devastating for this church to hear. Let's picture the situation. You know, here's the the messenger that was going around with these seven letters, and really this whole book of, of Revelation um, from Jesus, written by the hand of the Apostle John, and perhaps uh, the other letters to the other churches were read in order, and this church, as they were gathered, heard those other letters read about the loss of love at Ephesus that he dealt with, and the persecution at Smyrna that kept them small and, and struggling even though they were faithful. The charge of tolerating immorality 
and false teaching at Pergamos and Thyatira. Perhaps as they heard those things, they were thankful because they weren't being persecuted and because they knew that they didn't have heretics and false teachers in their midst. They they didn't have that and the immorality that was in these other churches. No, they had been greatly blessed with good teaching and unity and purity and relative freedom from persecution. had a name that they were alive. They were able to support other churches, to engage in missions. They were blessed with growth and prosperity. They were admired. They had a name that they lived. And they heard, as this letter was being read, he came to the part where he said, and to the angel of the church in Sardis. Of course, their attention would have raised to hear, what's he going to say to our church that's doing so well, that's got a name, we're we're known to be a, a vibrant living church. They listen to the way he introduces himself as he who has the seven spirits from God and the seven stars. And we talked about how the seven spirits, there's not seven Holy Spirits, but it's talking about a, the, the seven uses symbolically to show the fullness of the Spirit. And we saw how later on in Revelation, it talks about how the, it associates the sevenfold Spirit with, with uh, seven eyes and, uh, and seven horns. So it's showing omniscient power, omniscient, uh, knowing, knowing all things, and omnipotence, all power, all seeing and all power. The Spirit is, is, is such. And uh, so he is associated, Christ is associated with, uh, with this. And the words follow, the one that has the seven spirits and the seven stars. I know your works. Now with all the other churches, when he, after he said that, he began with, with positive things. So they're waiting. What's he going to say? To us. Perhaps he will speak of the unique opportunity that we have in our prosperity, in our situation, in our wealth that we have in this city to continue our mission work that we've been doing, supporting of other churches, our, our leadership, our example in the, to the other churches today. We, we have a, a great opportunity. Maybe they were thinking that Jesus was going to talk about that. But instead, what did they hear? You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. How the, the face of the ministers and elders it must, must have dropped, and people must have gasped. This is what he said to them in the part where to others he had said good things. Every heart must have sunk. As difficult as it was to hear this, as hard as these words are, it was a great mercy of the Lord to send them these words. Hypocrisy is one of the deadliest of sins because those who have it often do not recognize it. You don't usually have people come and say, you know, I'm really struggling with hypocrisy. (laughs) You don't usually get that. The less dangerous kind of hypocrisy is the kind that is known to the hypocrite. And there is that kind of hypocrisy. You know, the minister that's leading the double life, 
He's having an affair with the church secretary while preaching sermons that are admired, are admired by everyone. He knows, and he tries to justify himself, you know, oh, well, you know, I have a hard life and I need this for a right. He tries to just, but he knows, he knows he's a he knows he's doing wrong. Or the couple who comes to church with their bright smiles and everything, and everything's great, and then they go home and they're cursing each other and, you know, throwing dishes at each other, you know, whatever. Such persons, though they often find ways to justify themselves, they at least know that they're living a double life. They're putting on airs. They're, they're fake. But what about those who are prospering outwardly as a church, who are excited about what God is doing among them, but whose heart is far away from God? That's the dangerous kind. Perhaps if the ministers here were examined, their zeal is driven by their personal quest to be successful and has little to do with real love for God, but they think it has to do with real love for God. Their zeal. I'm zealous for God. I want to see the kingdom of God flirt. But what they really are after is their own reputation to be admired in the world. Perhaps one of the widows in this church who is exemplary in service to others, if she were to be examined in the depths of her heart, she's actually serving out of bitterness to God that people are suffering. She is driven to anger to serve, to make right what God made wrong. God has treated people wrong, putting in these hard situations, and I'm going to go and help them. I'm going to go fix them. I've met people like that. They're, they're very, very zealous about doing things. And, of course, some of them talk that way. But sometimes it can be something that's driving a person. Perhaps another is in the church because he was rejected in society and in the church. He's loved and appreciated. He said, I love this place. I, I, I love the church. Everybody, you know, they, they, they care about me. And we have, you know, I have all these relationships. And when I'm out there, I don't have any of that. He doesn't have any interest in God. He doesn't realize he's a sinner that needs to repent, any of that. And likewise, the man over there, he has always admired discipline, high morality. He finds the church. And here's some people that are disciplined. They, they have moral lives where the rest of the people in Sardis are all corrupt. Maybe, maybe he's a philosopher like I was talking about. He admires these things. He says, oh, this, oh, this is good stuff. And maybe he's striving to have those, those morals and all those, those good deeds and everything. So he finds this church. And he's, oh, I love this place. And he's zealous. Let's, let's go out and advance our cause all over the world. And he talks about Jesus and everything. But for him, Jesus is not Jesus. It's just moral good works kind of thing. And then another one that the guy loves doctrine and apologetics. He loves to see the system of doctrine and how all the pieces fit together. And he talks about doctrine. He reads all the big theology books and everything. But he, if you get down to it, he doesn't really care about the Lord. He just likes how everything fits together in, in all the, the doctrines. This is the kind of thing that... Uh, it's going on here, you know, the, these words, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. By these words, Jesus is exposing stuff. What if he had not written this letter to them? They might have gone on, 
preening their feathers and thinking that they were doing well because they had such a good reputation, supposing that they were okay, supposing that all was well with them when all was actually not well. I tell you, it is a great mercy when our Lord exposes hypocrisy before the day of judgment. And he still does this. He still exposes hypocrisy in the lives of his people before the day of judgment. Surely he has used this very letter to Sardis in many Christians' lives over the centuries to wake them up that there was hypocrisy in them. He raises up preachers to speak against hypocrisy. When he was on the earth, he warned against hypocrisy. Remember like in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you know, you're doing your prayers to be seen by man. You're fasting to be seen by other people. You're giving to be seen by other people. That sort of thing. You have your reward already, he said. You won't have a reward from God. You've already got your reward. You're doing all this for other reasons. Hard as it is, we should welcome the exposure of our hypocrisy. There is not one person that's entirely free of it. It is quite likely that there may be some among us who, though they profess faith, actually don't even know the Lord. You know, like that moral man I was talking about, or that, you know, whatever. May the Lord search you out, right here and right now, that you may realize that your only hope is in Jesus as Savior. Like you, it's not you, it's, it's Him. It's not what you're doing. It's not your good. It's, it's Christ alone who saves us. We come to Him to be, to be brought to God. That's the first thing that he deals with here. See how our Lord calls his church and its angel to correct their hypocrisy. That's the next thing we want to look at. Verse 2 and 3. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Be watchful. Now, those words literally mean to wake up. Or to stay awake. The Lord's words are definitely here a wake-up call to this church as we've just seen. It should certainly have woken them up. You know, you don't hear the Lord say, you have a name that you're alive, but you're actually dead. And you go, oh, well, I don't know about that. It should, it should have woken them up. The danger is that you start making excuses, that you start dodging, that you start glossing over everything when you have been exposed. You've been exposed about stuff, you know about it, and you try to get out of it. Our hearts are deceitful. And not only are our hearts deceitful, but Satan and also well-meaning mothers <laughs> and well-meaning friends want, don't want you to feel bad. And so someone, you know, you're dead. And, oh, no, you're, you're not that bad. They, they, they want to help you. And Satan wants to do it for very devious reasons. Well-meaning people want to, they don't want you to feel bad. And so they come to you to, to comfort you in a way that you really don't need to be comforted. What we need to do then is wake up. That's what he's saying. Be watchful. Face the truth of what we are before God. We can do that, you know, like Psalm 130 talks about, because there's forgiveness with God. If there was no forgiveness with God, then we wouldn't want to wake up and see what we are because it would be devastating and we would have no hope. But if there's forgiveness and salvation, then we can come to God as sinners, and know that he receives sinners through Christ. If you're soft on yourself, 
then you will be hardened. You will be hard. But if you're hard on yourself, then you will become soft. Almost everyone who claims to be too hard on themselves is actually very soft on themselves. We are sinners before God. We see but a fraction of our corruption. If the Lord convicts you, don't snuff it out. Embrace it. The way to deal with the problem of sin in your life is not to try to minimize it. The way to deal with it is to get to Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on in his counsel to say, Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect. This is talking about, well, they have some true, sincere works that had begun in them. But these works are not complete because there are things that are not brought to completion with them that need to be, things that need to be sorted out. There have been the beginnings of what is good. For example, the beginnings of a conviction of sin. They begin to see that, you know, this sin in their life. But it was of no avail because it was only a beginning. And it was never brought to completion. It was not perfected. That's what the idea of perfect is here. King Agrippa, remember him? He was almost persuaded by the Apostle Paul to become a Christian. That didn't do him any good, did it? To be almost persuaded and not all the way persuaded? It was a work that was yet incomplete. Maybe a true work of God, conviction of the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't conviction of the Holy Spirit unto salvation. He needed to hear this counsel. His conviction remained for a while but it was ready to die because he never finished it. It was sitting there, hovering, and it's partway there. What's going to happen to it? Is it just going to sit there? No, it's going to die. And that's how it is with you, whatever God is bringing in your life. Jesus is here saying, whatever sincerity there is that remains in you, pursue that, develop that, complete that, or it will die. It will be gone. Embrace the true work of the Spirit until that work is formed in you. Paul talks about laboring as a minister until Christ is formed in those that he's preaching to. He knows Christ is not really formed in some of them. And if you're a believer, embrace the work of the Spirit and follow through that you might grow in grace. Don't ignore it. Brush it off what God is teaching you, what he's showing you when, when he begins it in you. Is there conviction? Follow it through. Go on with it. Jesus emphasizes the point further when he says, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. What's he calling you to do there? To look back at your profession. Your profession of faith. Remember. The, the tense that's used here is where you, you do something that has implications into the future. And the word remember means to bear in mind, okay, not, not just recollect, but it's like take it to heart, you know, bear, bear it in mind. Um, I'm sorry, I, 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 said that, I, I said that wrong about the tense, I got the wrong place. Uh, this, is, this is actually in a present tense. It means to keep, remember, to keep bearing in mind. So it does have implication for the future, but keep bearing in mind. Take to heart the relationship that you enter into when you profess faith, whether you meant it or not, <laughs> okay? When you profess faith, 
whether you meant it or not, take to heart what you professed, what you said. James Durham says, look to your espousals. When you got engaged with Jesus as your husband, when you professed your faith, that was your, we're betrothed to him. We're his betrothed bride. And of course, the wedding's going to come when he returns. So during this time, we are his bride. We're the bride of Christ. We're betrothed to Christ. He says, look to your espousals. Look when you got married. What did the Lord promise you as the bridegroom? And what did you promise him when you first professed your faith? Seeing you in hypocrisy now, he might ask, when you came to me, did I propose to you only to take on, this is what James Durham said, did I propose to you only to take on a name without reality? Is that what was going on when you professed your faith? That Jesus said, hey, just, just take on a name without reality. That's, that's, what, that's all I want. Or did you engage only, he says, to profess in show and not to be thoroughly sincere? Indeed, what kind of relationship did you profess and what kind of relationship was he looking for when you came to him? What kind were you looking for? What kind was he looking for? Hold fast to what you have heard. Hold fast to what you have promised. And repent for not following through. Hold on to that profession. Bring it to completion. The work that God began in you. The true work of grace in your heart. Don't let it evaporate. Don't let it remain unformed. Repent and go all the way, whether it is that you are not a Christian at all or that you have stopped short in your growth as a Christian. It doesn't even matter. You don't even know sometimes. The Bible, God doesn't tell us in the Bible, okay, this is how far a person can go and uh, still be a hypocrite without really being saved. And this is how far a person who's saved can go toward corruption without showing that they're really a hypocrite. He doesn't give us that kind of direct teaching. What matters is that you go on past the hypocrisy, whatever it is, whether you're already a Christian, it's slowing you, or whether you're not even a Christian yet because of the hypocrisy. What matters is that you go on to sincerity, from where you are to sincerity that God requires. See how our Lord warns us of impending judgment if we will not deal with our hypocrisy. That's the third thing Looking at, see, see the rest of verse 3. Therefore, if you will not watch, that's what he was just telling him to do, right? I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Remember again, the word watch means wake up, but the translators use watch because watch emphasizes that you need to wake up and stay awake. That's, that's, that's what it means to watch, you, that you stay awake. Remember when Jesus told his disciples, he used the same word when they were at Gethsemane, and he kept saying, are you sleeping again? He, he, stay awake, stay awake. That's what he was telling them to do. James mentions the danger of, in his epistle of waking up and then going back to sleep. Remember what he says? You go and you look in the mirror, and you see stuff that you need to see about yourself and stuff you need to deal with before God. And then you go away and you forget. You just completely forget about it. You go on your merry way. On you go. That's what he's talking about. The people of Sardis had been awakened to their hypocrisy 
but if they do not watch, if they do not stay awake about this, if they go back to sleep in their hypocrisy, they will be worse off than they were before Jesus exposed them. I mentioned before the temptation to brush these things off. I spoke about how Satan is ready to help you brush things off. He wants to distract you. He wants to draw you away to do everything he can to say, you're okay. You don't need to listen to this. Um, and your well-meaning mother does it for, because she loves you, but in a wrong kind of way, is often eager to help you brush it off too. You know, a lot of mothers ruin their, especially their sons, you know, always telling them, oh, oh. Oh, it's too hard for him. Oh, he had, oh. And they never, they never push him out. They never, they never hold him to things. The consequence that Jesus names to those who will not watch is very fitting. He will come to them, he says, like a thief without warning. I will come upon you as a thief, are his words. The horrible reality about this is that you will not be able to prepare for his coming. Like if a thief comes, you don't say, oh, uh, yeah, there's a thief coming tonight at 2 o'clock. We need to get ready. Um, he's going to be here at 2, so we, we need to be ready for him to come. No, you, you, he comes when you don't know. Once he comes, you can't, it's too late to do anything. His judgment will fall upon you, and there will be no escape. The wake-up call that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead, was hard for the people of Sardis to hear. It's hard for us to hear that kind of thing if it's given to us. But how much worse to hear the same charge, exactly the same charge, on the day of judgment. The final day of judgment when there is no more opportunity to repent. To have him say, hypocrite, depart from me. I never knew you. You were only playing games with me the whole time. And you remember the pitiful response that's given in one place in Luke? He said, we, we, ate and drank. we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. You, you, you were here walking among us. You, you don't know us. You were here walking among us. And that's the problem, isn't it? The Lord is present in His church, and He's speaking, and you don't even know Him. You, you didn't even wake up. You don't even see who he is. That's the very problem exactly. Yes, he was here. He was ministering. He was doing his work among us by his spirit. Through word and sacrament that he has given us. He'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Remember, warnings are not given To harm you. Warnings are given to keep you from harm. Illustration I use a lot of times is there's a sign that says bridge out. It's to keep you from going off the edge because there's no bridge there. It's not to harm you. It's to prevent harm. You need to realize this is a gracious thing. We need to watch. If you won't watch, warning, then I'm going to come like a thief in the night. And you're going to hear the same the same thing again, only then you can't do anything about it. See how our Lord encourages, though, those who are sincere. Look at verse 4. 
you have, and of course he's writing to the leader of the church, the, the angel of the church, he says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There are only a few here who are sincere. That's pretty sad, isn't it? A church with a great reputation, only a few people were sincere. Jesus makes it clear that the sincere ones are the exception. He says, even in Sardis. Those are biting words. You have a few people, even in Sardis. Like, there's, no, there's no pure people here. It, well, yeah, there's a few. There's a few. The, the implication is even in this place where there's so much hypocrisy, there's a few that are not defiled by that. He describes these few as those who had not defiled their garments. Now, that's interesting because their garments, that's the outward thing, isn't it, in a way? Their, their garments were, um, the, the appearance was good. Their garments looked good. But the garments were defiled by what? In his eyes. By their hypocrisy. Because Jesus sees that. They were like the Pharisees that Jesus called whitewashed tombs. They're clean on the outside, like a cup that's washed on the outside and filthy on the inside. A tomb whitewashed on the outside, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. That's the illustration that Jesus uses. That's what he's talking about here. That uh, the, 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 the outside was defiled because the inside was ruined. Clean on the outside, full of dead men's bones on the inside. Jesus promised reward to these few who are undefiled. The, the reward that he promised is perfectly suited to them. What does he say? They will walk before me in white, for they are worthy. It's not that they were perfect when he says they were worthy. No one is perfect. That's not what it means to be worthy. But it means that they were sincere. Their profession was not artificial. It was not marred by hypocrisy. They were not one thing on the outside and something else on the inside. Now, again, we all have some hypocrisy in us. But I'm talking about that in a, in a, a fundamental way. That was not the case. These ones, these few, they had true communion with Jesus as sinners who were cleansed by him because they confessed their sins. They truly saw that they were sinners and that they needed the salvation of Jesus Christ. And they truly did turn to him and trust in him that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Instead of denying their sin, instead of excusing their sin, that's not the pathway they took. They took the pathway that he calls us to, not to avoid the conviction, but to embrace it and come to him and say, Lord, save me because I can't save myself. I can't possibly cleanse myself from my sins. I can't deliver myself from my sin. I'm here, Lord, before you. You take me. That's what they had done. So, so what does he do? He clothes them with white garments. What does he do? This is future. He gives them white garments with him in glory. They walk with him in glory and he gives them white garments, which is what they want. That's what they came to him for. I'm a sinner. They weren't playing games. I'm a sinner, Lord, and I need your salvation. He said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to bring you all the way to purity, the purity that I give. And, uh, you know, this could be referring, of course, with righteousness, we already have 
righteousness, don't we? We already have white garments in our standing. But he's talking about actually bringing them in the future, clothing them with white garments. That's, that will be his gift to them. And look, Jesus promises the same thing to those who, though hypocrites, repent of their hypocrisy, that they too will be clothed in white. Because he was addressing this church, and he was saying, some of you are not hypocrites. There's a few here that are not hypocrites. But a whole bunch of them were. Now, in this verse 5, he talks about the ones who overcome that hypocrisy. He says, he who overcomes, you could say the other ones had already overcome. They're among the overcomers. They were. But I believe he's turning now because he basically says the same thing to, to these ones that he just said to the ones who were the few that were not hypocrites. He says, he who overcomes, the one that overcomes, shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. There is forgiveness then for every hypocrite at Sardis who overcomes. They will receive the very same reward as those who came to the Lord sincerely to start with. It doesn't matter when the sincerity begins, when you become real with the Lord. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you became real. What matters is that you did believe what he said and you did come to him to save you from your sins. You will never be cut off once you've done that. We saw that this morning too. You'll never be cut off. He will keep you in his hand. Your name will never be blotted out. That's what he's saying here. The Lord, again, urges all of us to take heed to what he says to this church. Once again, he says in verse 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He wants you listening in and bringing this to heart. He wants you watching, right? Bringing, bringing this before you, waking up. Some people have not woken up to the Lord, and some have. Jesus stresses the fact that what he writes to each of these seven churches pertains to all of us. I've been emphasizing that because he emphasizes that. With every single one of these letters, he brings it before us. This is for us. The, these blessings belong to all who come to Jesus in sincerity. Please stand and let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you, Lord, for your mercies to us. We thank you that your salvation is a very rich and full thing that it is for sinners, those who come to you as sinners to be saved. And Father, even when we do, we still have, we still have hypocrisy in us in various degrees. And uh, it's not because there's no hypocrisy. It's not because of a perfect sincerity, because it's not perfect in this life. But it's because we have come in a way of Realizing we can't save ourselves, realizing that you are our only hope, coming to you as the one who came to redeem us. Lord, help us to return to our spousals. Help us to go back to when we first professed your name, if we have done so. If we have not, we pray that we would have that time when we do. Father, that we would come before you, O Lord, and, and, and recognize what was the relationship that we entered into that, at that time. Was it a relationship where we pretend to walk with God or where we pretend to be your people? Or where we pretend that we need Christ? No, it was a relationship where we do all of these things. And we pray, Father, if we have only just begun toward that, that 
Lord, you would so work in us to bring that to completion. You would cause us, Lord, to embrace the gospel, that, that we would wake up, that we would awaken to, to your truth and to your righteousness, to your kingdom. And Father, that we would be able to go forward for you, that we know what a change it makes, Lord, when we're going along, we're bopping along without you, without God, without Jesus, and then your truth comes home to us. The light breaks in. And we can never go back. You know, it's a, it, it captures us. It captivates us. We sang earlier in Psalm 116 that we, we become your servant and your slave. Lord, we're yours. We're brought to you. We're forever indebted to you. We're delighted with you. It's not a, it's not a grudging kind of a slavery. It's a beautiful, a beautiful bondage, beautiful bonds, sweet bonds that we're able to to be your people forever, to be glued to you, to be attached to you as our Savior, to be kept by you. Father, we thank you that it is a sonship that we're brought in as very heirs of your house with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would deliver us all from hypocrisy, that you would help us to identify hypocrisy that is in us. And we pray then that we would move on from that toward embracing the truth and and not avoiding it thank you lord that your word is able to help us do that we pray that it would we pray this in jesus name amen all right let's see. tell us the testimony of god that's written in here it tells us that we need him as our redeemer it tells us that we come to him and he does the redeeming. you can't redeem yourself if you embrace that in sincerity you come to him, he redeems you. Receive now the blessing of the Lord. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.